Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And this is your latest work from home deep dive episode where we'll look back at the Supreme Court's historic May sitting. Justice Ginsburg took working from home to another level during this argument session. We're going to chat about that and a bunch of other highlights from the court's first foray into live streaming. And later, we're going to chat with this week's special guest, Jason Harrow, who argued for the so-called rogue presidential electors in the court's final argument of the term, Colorado Department of State versus Baca. But first, we got just one opinion this week. None of the blockbusters that we were waiting on, though. Nope. This one, Lucky Brand Dungarees versus Marcel Fashions, is a trademark case over Lucky's use of the mark get lucky. But the case is really about an odd civil procedure issue. I'm already asleep. Okay, stay with me here, all right? This case is about a so-called defense preclusion, which would bar defendants from raising defenses they failed to raise in previous litigation. Okay, so that sounds a lot like regular old preclusion. Uh, It is, but at oral argument, we saw a lot of justices who were concerned that not allowing a defendants to raise these defenses could be unfair, particularly those defending IP suits, since the stakes and thus the efforts to defend the lawsuit can vary pretty drastically over the life of a trademark. And that's exactly what Lucky says happened here, right? Yes. They said Marcel was allowed to bring new claims related to the party's decades-long trademark dispute. But Lucky wasn't able to assert new defenses because of the Second Circuit's novel defense preclusion. So it seems like any defense preclusion wouldn't just apply in IP cases, but really in any case, right? So what did the justices say about this new potential trap? Is it a real thing or not? Yeah, so we still don't know. Um, (laughs) All right, that helps. So Justice Sotomayor wrote the opinion for unanimous court, and she said there might be such a thing as a defense preclusion, but at the very least, it would have to be parallel to regular old preclusion. And that didn't happen here? Not according to the court. They said this litigation related to a similar but still new mark, and so it couldn't be the basis for preclusion. So that one's going back to the lower court so the parties can continue their never-ending wars here. (laughs) That's right. These parties have been battling out in court since 2001, so coming up on 20 years. Wow. So we're recording this on Friday, May 15th, and the next possibility for opinions is Monday. And maybe we'll get some of the bigger cases that day, like the Trump administration's plan to wind down deferred deportation for dreamers or federal protections for LGBT workers. Though I have to admit, Jordan, that I was pretty happy that Supremes didn't give us too much news as we were all literally tuning in to SCOTUS arguments. Yeah, one of the most closely watched cases of the term, the ones over subpoenas for the president's financial records, was argued on Tuesday. We'll hear argument next in case 19635, Donald Trump versus Cyrus Vance. We're not going to dive too deep into that uh, on this episode, but as always, you can check out our coverage of that and all of the arguments on news.bloomberglaw.com. Instead, we're going to take a look at the whole sitting and highlight some of the more significant issues. So, Kimberly, what stood out to you about the arguments? I got to say, for me, the first argument really stood out because I just love uh, copyright cases. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it stood out for me <laughs> because it's an all, it had an all-female advocate lineup to kick off the historic sessions when everyone was tuning in. Ms. Ross? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Ms. Black? 
Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. That's right. And in this trademark case, it was uh, Erica Ross from the Solicitor General's office and Lisa Blatt of Williams and Connolly. They really did a great job being the test subjects for the court's first ever remote arguments. But Kimberly, uh, infrequent court watchers might have been a bit misled by this representation, right? Right. So we've talked about it many times on this podcast, but the gap between men and women advocates at the court is um, not good. You said in an earlier episode, I think that it was something like 136 to 20. Right. Blatt herself actually did several of those 20 appearances um, on behalf of the women this term. And this argument was her 40th. And she was still, though, despite the remote setting, she was able to infuse her... trademark style, let's call it. Right. Here she is in an exchange with Justice Gorsuch. You've read the Tushnet brief and the government's brief. You have not obviously read our expert that explains how humorous... Love it. That's the sort of thing you can only pull off when you're at Blatt's level. All right, Jordan, what what stood out to you? Well, there's really so much that happened over this two-week session, but... You know, when we look back, you know, years from now, I think it's, you know, it's impossible to ignore the the Trump subpoena cases, these historic arguments. As a reminder, this is the dispute over subpoenas, um, several from the House and one from the Manhattan DA for the president's financial information. We saw some of the more conservative justices push the president's attorney, Patrick Strawbridge, on his argument that the House subpoenas weren't intended to serve its legislative functions, but rather to harass the president. And the questioning wasn't totally one-sided, though. You had Gorsuch, for example, pressing Strawbridge on whether the court should just defer to the House's views about its own legislative purposes. You argue that there is no demonstrated need, no substantial legislative purpose. The House uh, is before us, and I'm sure we're going to hear from them that there is a substantial legislative need. Um, why, Why should we not defer to the House's views about its own legislative purposes? And Justice Elena Kagan suggested that allowing the president to block these subpoenas would put him above the law. So, Mr. Secretary, you've said that a number of times and made the point, which we have made, that presidents can't be treated just like an ordinary citizen. But it's also true, and indeed a fundamental precept of our constitutional order, that a president isn't above the law. But the justices, they seem to struggle with where to draw the line between deferring to Congress while protecting the president from harassment and distraction. And the House's lawyer, Doug Letter, didn't seem to be able to convince a majority of the court that the House had a reasonable line to draw here. Right. It seemed to me like the president is likely going to lose in the Manhattan DA case, but the other ones seem too close to call, right? I think so. Um, Certainly looking worse for the president in the Manhattan DA case. The lawyer for the prosecutor's office, Carrie Dunn, who is making his high court debut, was one of a number of uh, notable debuts in this session. He seemed to make the justices more comfortable in terms of drawing a line and setting a standard than in the House case that was argued right before it. But to the extent that the main short-term stakes of the case are what the public can learn about the president's finances before the 2020 election. Uh, If the president had to lose one of the cases, he'd probably rather lose the Manhattan DA case because grand jury secrecy rules would bar disclosing that information as opposed to the financial information from the congressional subpoenas, which we imagine would make its way to the public more quickly if Trump were to lose the House case. And of course, uh, Justice Thomas continued his questioning streak. The usually quiet justice asked a question at every opportunity after declining to ask a question in the courtroom for about a year. 
Uh, yes, uh, Ms. Ross, the, a couple of questions. Um, the- and as we noted at the top, Justice Ginsburg upped her work-from-home game by working from the hospital. She heard arguments from a Baltimore hospital room after a gallbladder procedure, and she didn't even have any unmuting issues like some of her <laughs> colleagues did, so good for her. Uh, Justice Ginsburg. glaring feature of what the government has done in expanding this exemption is to toss to the winds entirely. But don't worry, listeners. She's since been released from the hospital and is doing well, according to the court. And no discussion of the Supreme Court's remote argument session would be complete without mentioning the, let's call them the technical difficulties. The subject matter of the call ranges to the topic then the call is transformed and it's, it's yeah. a call that Yeah, I'm not sh- totally sure that counts as a technical <laughs> difficulty, but you know, given the circumstances <laughs> it was just a difficulty. I mean, given the circumstances, I thought the justices did a pretty good job with remote arguments. Definitely. I think the flush actually underscores how smoothly it went otherwise given everything that could have gone wrong, you know, and obviously that's no excuse not to live stream arguments from the court once they go back to hearing arguments from there since there's not a toilet in the courtroom. <laughs> That we know of. Right. Uh, so the court wrapped up its May sitting with two related cases involving rogue presidential electors. Dun, dun, dun. We'll hear argument next in case number 19-518, the Colorado Department of State versus Michael Baca. Listeners will recall that when we vote in the presidential election, we're really voting for a slate of electors who will then choose the president and vice president. Most of the time, however, electors will vote for the candidate that won their state's popular election. But not always. Sometimes they go rogue. And actually more electors, 10, went or tried to go rogue during the 2016 election than in any other presidential election. But of course, it did not affect the outcome. And it's never altered the outcome of a presidential election. But we live in strange times, and more electors could go rogue, especially as party unity uh, deteriorates. These are two cases, one out of Washington state and the other one out of Colorado, which asks whether states can punish or remove these electors, also referred to as faithless electors. Yeah, they really get some bad names here. Yeah. Rogue electors. All right. Villainous. Terrible, terrible people, I guess. <laughs> And here to talk about the arguments is attorney Jason Harrow, who made his Supreme Court debut arguing the Colorado case on behalf of the electors. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Harrow. Thanks so much for joining us today. Of course, it's great to be here. So, Jason, without getting into the merits just yet, can you set us up in terms of what the Constitution says about electors and the Electoral College? Sure. The Constitution is actually pretty detailed on this topic. Um, The original Constitution, the one that was adopted in that sweaty summer in Philadelphia in 1787 by the framers, um, puts the Electoral College in Article 2. It says that states appoint in the manner as the legislature of a given state wishes um, a number of electors, of presidential electors, and that number is a simple equation. Uh, It's equal to the number of U.S. senators plus representatives. So that number grows with the population of a state. Um, And then the original constitution says that those electors meet across the country at a time that Congress chooses. They meet in their own states and they vote, they cast two votes for president. 
the winner becomes president and the runner-up becomes vice president. That's the original scheme. That proved not to be a great idea when number one and number two, <laughs> uh, you know, when it just happens automatically and you don't get to pick president and vice president, you can have a situation where people of different parties are president and vice president that actually happen. So the next thing the Constitution says about presidential electors came uh, a couple of decades later in 1803 in an amendment called the 12th Amendment, and that elaborates on some of the procedures. Most importantly, it separates out the vote for president. So you now vote separately for president and vice president. But it kept the role of electors. It did nothing to change the fact that the states appoint electors and the electors vote by ballot for president and vice president. So there, there's mention of presidential electors elsewhere, but those are the really two key parts of the Constitution. It happened in 1787 in Article 2 and then 1803 in the 12th Amendment. So, Jason, uh, some of the justices anyway noted that the language there might not give the state authority to punish these rogue or faithless electors or however one might put it, but does the Constitution specifically prohibit it? You know, the Constitution does not say either way, and, and some of the justices pointed this out, but what it does do is it sets out the roles of each actor, and, and we think that that makes clear what the respective sort of rights and powers are, right? So the simple version, and indeed the Constitution's version, is that the states appoint electors, the state legislatures choose how those appointments are made, the, the way that the, the word the Constitution says is the manner, and then the electors vote by ballot. So those are sort of the three steps. So if you're the state as a whole and you're appointing, so that's going to include the governor, that includes the secretary of state, that includes the, you know, they collectively do the appointing. The state legislature tells them how. In every state, that's by holding a popular vote, which people say is the, the popular vote for president. Technically, states don't have to do that, right? But every legislature has chosen that manner. And then the electors vote by ballot. So, it's true that beyond that, the Constitution doesn't say you could do this, you can't do that, you can, uh, you know, you can make them go to this place. It could be a noon or it can't be 11 a.m. or, th you know, it, the Constitution is never really that detailed. But when you think about the division of powers there, to us, it's clear that the people voting get to vote and the people appointing get to appoint. But to a point doesn't mean I tell you how to vote. So the states argue that they have broad authority to set the criteria for the electors, as you mentioned, um, for example, by adding a residency requirement. How, how do you distinguish between what the state can set in terms of the electors and what they can't? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two very simple ways to think about it. And I think an analogy with really anyone else in our political system, from all of us who go and vote in November or in primaries, all the way up to U.S. senators, representatives, will, will sort of reveal it. And that is that... Um, you know, states can do a lot, as they can with other elections, to sort of regulate the process, right? They can tell you when you're a regular voter where to go to vote. They can tell you to register. They can tell you, uh, they can make ballot requirements, right? They, they can tell you that you have to win a primary in order to be on the general election ballot. Um, all of the, they can tell you you have to be 18 years old. Right. All of these things are sort of sensible, neutral requirements about the process of voting. What the states can't do is regulate the vote itself. And, and that's what we're saying. And I think that's a straightforward line. It's true. Some of the justices had questions about exactly where that line is. 
But that's because there's always, you know, we learned this in law school. The lawyers listening will remember this from first year civil procedure. It's really hard to draw a pure line between what's called substance and what's called procedure, right? That, that, that line sometimes blends into each other. Nonetheless, there is a distinction. And so that distinction is the substance of the vote can't touch it. Just like you can't touch the substance of a vote of a regular voter, can't touch the substance of a vote of a U.S. senator, representative, process of the vote, where to show up, how to cast it, who can do it, that is absolutely able to be regulated by the state. Well, thanks for taking us back to first year of law school. You've ruined everyone's day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was that was one of my favorite classes. I, I don't know that you know when, when you realize that it blows your mind, right? Wait, it, they can bleed into each other, but you know. So, all right. Anyway, and and I think this case shows that there there's a little bit of blurring, but on the other hand, when people really just think about it for a couple seconds, they go, "Wait, there is a difference between saying you have to live in a congressional district." And you have to vote for Hillary Clinton. That's a, that's a difference. So getting to some of the consequences of whatever the justices wind up deciding here, um, you know, this case is coming to the court at a point in the term where we've gotten some conflicting points of view about whether the effect of a ruling should matter to the outcome based on some of the justices questioning and their opinions over the term. Right. And in the LGBT cases that the justices heard earlier in their term, Gorsuch was concerned about the massive social upheaval that might arise if the court says that LGBT workers are protected under federal anti-discrimination laws. Right. And so still going on the, the Gorsuch point, using him as an example, you know, in the recent opinion he had in the Ramos case, he basically just said that Courts should just rule on what the right answer is, not what the consequences are. Uh, consequences, again, were a big issue in another case that was argued during this historic remote argument session, the McGirt case, where some of the justices were concerned about ruling that large parts of Oklahoma were technically Indian reservation land. But we see that the justices here um, were, again, concerned about the actual chaos that could happen here. Follow up on Justice Alito's line of questioning and what I might call the avoid chaos principle of judging, um, which suggests that if it's a close call or tiebreaker, that we shouldn't facilitate or create chaos. Uh, and you, I think, answered and said it hasn't happened, uh, but we have to look forward uh, and just being realistic, judges are going to worry about chaos. Can you uh, so tell you us if that's that? a relevant concern for the justices or how they should be um, factoring that into their decision? The, I, I, again, I, I think I look at things, as you can tell, in terms of, of balances in many ways. And, and to me, there is always a balance. To us, the, the Constitution's clear. And where the Constitution's clear, I'm not sure that it's the role of the courts to really override that because, and, and this has been a long time criticism of many of the court's rulings from the left and the right, which is they just sort of substitute what the justices think, what the court thinks of a good policy, which may or may not be right, with a sort of considered version of it that maybe the framers gave us or that a Congress said or a state legislature. And so if it is clear and also, I'll, I'll add a caveat, right? If, if, it, if the law is clear and it wouldn't lead to absolute absurdity, right? I, maybe I'll endorse a principle of anti-absurdity. You know, the, um, th there's just a mistake 
or a typo or something like that, um, or something that the world has changed so drastically that there's absolutely no possible rational explanation, maybe that should enter the justices' minds. Um, you know, they're human, and we li- we do... It, it, the Constitution's hard to change, as you both know, so there should be an anti-chaos principle. Um, but should it really come into play when so many people for so many years have thought, how should we pick the president? And they've decided on this way, and now the states are, are going to say it should be another way, and the court's going to endorse that? I'm not so sure. The second point, though, is that I don't think that there would be certain chaos. Indeed, I think that there's risks on both sides, and I think that the risks are uncertain. I mean, in support of our proposition, no, there was a lot of questions, for instance, about bribery. Could this lead to the chaos of, of, of these 538 people being bribed? Well, we've had 58 presidential elections, and we've had 23,000 electoral votes, and there's zero evidence of any bribery there. So, to, to me, that shows that it's not so bad, the system the framers gave us, and that we don't need to be so worried. But, you know, that's, I, I understand why people are thinking about that principle. I'm not saying it's invalid. I just think we've got the better of the legal and the practical arguments there. Well, Jason, just pushing back a little bit on the, at least in theory anyway, let's take your uh, anti-absurdity principle, which definitely, you know, sounds like a, a good one to apply. But, um, you know, what what could be more absurd than an increasingly infinitesimal minority of the country uh, deciding the presidential election differently than the way the rest of the country wants it to go? Well, it's a great question, but I think that you've, in a way, already answered it because this is how two of the last three presidents have been elected, right? I mean, Al Gore won a half a million more popular votes than George W. Bush, and the system gave us that result, and people accepted it, even after the Supreme Court intervened in an extraordinary way in Bush v. Gore. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton won a drastic majority or plurality of of votes nationally, three million more. And because a few tens of thousands of votes went Trump's way in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, he was selected president. And again, is that absurd? Some people think it is. Um, Would it have been less absurd had a few electoral votes switched in Pennsylvania because they had said, you know, Clinton won, right? Uh, You know, and and we're going to do the right thing or the thing that we think is possible. So, So that's one point is I think that people take for granted how absurd the system that we have now is. And so when they think of a, of any change, they think, wait, could, could that could go wrong. But our, 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 there's so many imperfections and ways to go wrong. And I, I think that's what we, I, I know that sounds, I don't mean to be glib about that. Right. But the, that is an important point to, to me, which is there's imperfections on both sides. We have a, we, we have a process of presidential selection that is imperfect. By the way, it's not perfect anywhere. Israel hasn't been able to choose a president with their system for three years or four years, right? So, you know, Britain has gone through multiple prime ministers in the last several years. It's hard. It's a, it's a hard question. And so I guess what we're ultimately saying is um, go with the system the framers gave us. Trust the Constitution there actually is value, right? Because we just talked about that absurdity, and I don't mean to go on and on, but my point there is electors can sometimes exercise a safety valve. We put on the table, what if a presidential candidate dies 
in between, say, the presidential election and the vote of the electors. The states really have no answer to that if their theory is electors have no discretion and electors don't even really exist. So, you know, there's risks on both sides. So if there is, let's let's go with the Constitution. Let's see what happens. I trust, you know, we've we've lasted so so long, and uh, if we need to change it, let's do it through an amendment in a, in a, in a really thoughtful way, and not do it in this what, what I view as a really unconstitutional and slipshod way that the states have. Well, now that we've sorted out that uh, the elections are absurd, um, let's turn a little, uh, to something a little lighter. This was your first Supreme Court argument. Um, how was it arguing, sort of, at the court? Um. It, well, first of all, it was an amazing experience. It was an honor. I had an awesome legal team. We had so much fun mooting the case with tons of legal experts. Um, our clients are great. So the overall experience was was you know fantastic, and it was a real honor. I, th- I think there were pluses and minuses. Y- you know, when I was w- when when I found out I was arguing the case because of this unusual thing that happened where they split up cases that were originally consolidated. It was like right on the verge of that mid-March sort of freak out that everyone had about (laughs) what in the world is going to happen. And so two days later, the Supreme Court wiped the arguments off the calendar. And I was like, oh, my God, I just had an argument for 48 hours. So so who even knew if it was going to be argued or how it was going to be argued? And when it turned out that it was going to be argued by phone, I guess I was a little disappointed that I wouldn't get to, you know, put on a suit and go to Washington, D.C. and go up those steps and appear at the podium and see the justices in their robes uh, all nine. But on the other hand, the fact that this was live streamed and and, and on C-SPAN, it, it made it so much more special to so many people on our team and so many of my friends and family because they were following along and invested in a way that they couldn't have been. Um, mm. And, you know, we had a post-game show on C-SPAN and podcasts like yours. And so <laughs> I really felt like it was a privilege and like so much in our lives now. You just got to make the best of it and get used to sort of the new normal and see the good parts of it. So, um, you know, the chance to get a, a, a Supreme Court argument, the chance to have everyone I know listen and, and, and text me and email me and follow along and everyone's at home. It, it was a real a real thrill. Um I, I hope to do it again, whatever way. I'll just add as a final parenthesis, the the last challenge is, as you as you know, um, many of the advocates get like the court sketch artists to do a sketch, <laughs> and you uh-huh. put that up on your wall, and you know you for the, in your law office for the rest of your life. You go, I argued in the Supreme Court, right? And that's what it looked like. And so, how did we do that, right? I mean, I I have a few photos of me in a headset from my from my <laughs> office. So that's that's another. You take weird a screenshot of, of the C-SPAN, how they have you and whatever justice <laughs> that's questioning you, and then you email that over to to Art Lean, and he'll he'll set you up. Kimberly actually has a story on that and how the uh, courtroom artists are operating or not operating in these times. So yeah, so it's help them out. Issue. Help them out. Yeah. Ask for a sketch. <laughs> Yes, I saw that, and and they do. I did speak to to a couple of the artists, and I think they are trying. Right, you, you, it's funny. My idea was exactly your idea, Jordan. I I um I thought it should be because that's that's the way that I see it in my head. Because that's so many people texted me. You know, you're on TV. You know, here. <laughs> yeah. So that's the way I sort of see it. The other idea is like 
that that I guess the advocates in the middle and the justices are maybe like arrayed around them in some kind of circle. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, it, my, also, so, someone suggested maybe the justices should be Hollywood squares, you know, the nine oh, justices, saw, yeah. Hollywood squares, and you're off <laughs> off to the side. And uh, so who knows? We're, we're working it out. At, you know, it, 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 we'll, we'll figure something out. So, Jason, though, on a, on a more serious note, um, you don't, we don't want you to divulge any of the intricacies of the, any of the moot courts that you did ahead of time. But um, if you could divulge this here on the podcast, um, in your moot courts, did anyone acting as Justice Thomas ask you a question about Lord of the Rings? elector who had promised to vote for the winning candidate could suddenly say, you know, uh, I'm going to vote for Frodo Baggins. And that's, I really like Frodo Baggins. And you're saying under your system, you can't do anything about that. Uh, you know, interestingly, as you know, we, the advocates prepare for anything. I was prepared for all sorts of fantasy and sci-fi analogies. <laughs> I had answers to Frodo. I had answers to Luke Skywalker. I had answers to, you know, Shrek and things like that. No, no, the, the answer is no. But the more serious answer is we did consider all of these possibilities of, you know, outrageous hypotheticals. And one, again, we're talking about silver linings. One silver lining of preparing for this in the age of, of coronavirus is that normally, you know, you, you carefully schedule these moot courts and you try and get these lawyers that are available for these couple hour windows and they, and they come to a place in Washington or, you know, Larry Lessig's in Boston. But now we just did moots like at set times, a couple times a week, and just anyone we knew could just participate remotely and ask all these great questions, right? And we just have Zoom moots. And if some lawyers were in Boston and some were in LA and some were in Washington, great. Let's just get the smartest people. No one thought of Frodo, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to think <laughs> what what sort of non-people. I mean, we, we talked a lot about the votes for for dead people because that's a that has happened, right? And 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 it's actually important to take account of. Uh, if something really goes awry in the presidential selections. So that I was more prepared for the dead person than Frodo candidate. <laughs> well, we won't go too much into um, criticizing you over insinuating that Frodo isn't a real person, but um, um, <laughs> our producer's rolling his eyes at me. So um, last question for you. Um, <laughs> the really burning question that I think most court watchers have is what, what, what about the quill? Um, my understanding is that we will get quills. I actually checked in about that. So I wish that I had an answer to report to you and, and to the listeners to, to say. Um, but it did come up on some of the conference calls, like the planning calls. And I believe we will be getting quills. So the court is trying to, you know, make operations normal. I, I will say, if anyone from, from the court or who has dealt with the court is listening, and, and I know you have, Kimberly, the, the staff at the Supreme Court, um, was beyond excellent. They, they are true mm-hmm. public servants. And through this pandemic, the way that they kept the court going, kept the advocates informed, tested multiple times, because one of the great anxieties of doing this by phone is, my gosh, what if there's bad sound quality? What if we get cut off? What right. if this conference call doesn't work? What the if there's a toilet was, flushing in the background? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that, and, and it's clear that did not happen. You know, the, the advocates were well taken care of. And, and I think that will continue with the quill and the like. So just, you know, the country should know that uh, the, the staff at the Supreme Court has been really top notch through this. 
Well, you heard it here, um, PIO at the Supreme Court. So, you know, you can start dishing out some secret stuff to us because we're our fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. We really appreciate you um, taking the time to join us and talk about your experience. Of course, it's a thrill. And for our listeners who might not be steeped in all of the Supreme Court's arcane traditions, there is a tradition of handing out these quill pens to the lawyers who are arguing at the Supreme Court. Obviously, now in this pandemic era, that's just yet another issue that's possibly changing like all other aspects of life are. So, Kimberly, can you imagine getting your first SCOTUS argument and then because there's a pandemic raging, you actually don't even get to go to court to argue it? Yeah, um, Jordan, I'm really not even able to process the whole pandemic thing. So, (laughs) no, no, I can't add Supreme Court arguments into that mix. Yeah, well... Uh, That's going to do it for our deep dives until the end of the term. But we'll keep you updated as the court rolls out opinions and figures out what to do in the age of COVID. Yeah, Kimberly, when are the justices going to return to the courthouse on 1 First Street? Well, Jordan, um, you and everyone else out there can follow along with the latest Supreme Court news on news.bloomberglaw.com. And we'll let you know as soon as we do. Thanks for listening. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, super fun, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.